Why don't we pray? Father, these are your words, not mine. Father, we pray that you would graciously help us to see these words for what they were meant to be seen, and, and would you help us to understand and know you. As Paul prays, I pray, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we may be enlightened. In your name we pray, amen. I'm looking around this room, and um, I know we're creatures of habit. So we usually find our places where we like to sit. And we, but as a preacher, I'm a creature of habit. And I'm looking around, and you guys are all out of place. <laughs> That's kind of one of the beauties of two congregations coming together. But I'm looking over here, and Tom's supposed to be right there, and Tom's over there. So you're just throwing me off, Tom. But the more of you are doing that. It's kind of cool. Just... Squirrel, sorry. Ephesians. Before we tackle Ephesians, I want to get to it through the back door. Okay? I want us to go to the Old Testament, the book of Job. Just sit and listen to these words. This is Job. This is about Job. Job chapter 1, 13. Now there was a day when his, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. You hear what's going on here? Job has just lost all his donkeys, all his oxen, and the servants who were caring for them by these Sabians, whoever they are. While this messenger was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So now he's lost all his sheep and all his servants. And you need to understand, the currency of the day was not gold and silver. The currency of the day was critters, animals. So he's lost his camels, his, his donkeys, his oxen, and now his sheep. And we're told in verse 17, while the messenger was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So now he's lost his camels. When I was in Africa, I realized that money didn't mean anything in that part of northern Kenya. What meant something to them was their animals. That was their currency, and, and Job, he has lost everything. We're told in verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck down the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now let this sink in. In a matter of moments, this man has realized that everything he holds dear, all the comforts of life, all his loves in life, is gone. I can't imagine losing one child. He lost them all. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That seems to be appropriate. Grief, mourning. And fell on the ground and worshipped. Now, I, I just simply looked in, this, in the uh, English uh, dictionary, and it says worship means to adore, to give honor, to express devotion. Fell on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I read that, and I go, Job, you're either delusional, or you know a God that is of such great value and worth that even the things you hold dear cannot keep you from worshiping Him. I don't see if there's another... Like, I, I think it's either one or the other. He's delusional or he knows something. Now we fast forward to the book of Ephesians, a letter that Paul writes to a church that he had planted some seven, eight years back. And Paul's in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. We know he's in prison because in Ephesians 6 he says, it's because of, these, it's because of this gospel that I proclaim that I'm in chains. So he's in prison. And in prison he writes a letter. And he's over 400 words in. The portion that Rita just read, he's over 400 words into his letter, and I have yet to hear one complaint, and I have yet to hear one prayer request saying, would you pray that I could get out of jail? And as we read the rest of this letter, you're not going to find a complaint, and you're not going to find one of those prayer requests. Instead, what we read last week was a huge section on him praising God for things he cannot see. Spiritual blessings. And now he begins to pray a selfless prayer for others that he hasn't seen, he's only heard about, hasn't seen for several years. And I go, Paul, you're delusional. Or, or there's, there's a Savior that you know that is far of greater value and comfort and splendor than anything the creature comforts of earth can bring you. Like, what else would possess a man to do that? If I was writing the letter, there would be a complaint on line one, and line two would be, pray that I get out of jail. And then I might remember to praise God. And with this in mind, I think it's important for us just to go, okay, well, let's take a look at this thing closely. Let's look at this prayer closely. Because I want to know, is this guy delusional? Or does this guy know something that I need to know? Because if he knows something that I need to know, I want to know it because... Let's dig in. Verse 15. Look at verse 15. For this reason, what reason? Because is what literally he's saying, because. Because of what I've just finished telling you. What has he just been finished telling us? He's 
He's just listed all these incredible blessings. But, but specifically, he says, in verse 13, the last two verses, he says, in him, in Jesus, you also, you church in Ephesus, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard this gospel, this good news of, of, of your salvation, when you heard that word, which is truth, that's why we spend time under this book, because we believe it's truth. When you heard the word, the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in Him. He says, because you believed in Him. I'm going to pray like this. Now, He doesn't just stop there. Not only because I've heard that you believe in Him, but because of, I've, I, I've, I've, keep carry on, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Not only do you believe, yeah, I believe that Jesus died and he rose from the dead. I believe that intellectually, I, I understand that's a historical event. But he says, not only do you believe, but that, that, that faith in this Jesus has changed the way you live. There's a faith in what he's done and in who he is, but there's this incredible love that has been obvious toward all the saints. That's remarkable. It's not a dead faith, it's a faith that works. And Paul, who's in prison, has just got word of what's going on there, and like he, he's like, this is crazy good. That's my paraphrase. And so he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Can I ask you a question? Look around this room. These are the people of God. That's us. We are. If we've heard the word of truth and we've put our faith in Him, then we are the people of God. When, when, when we got news two years ago that Lynn was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer, the people of God from both of these congregations loved us in very obvious ways. Paul tells us the response ought to be, thank you, Jesus, for this love that was showered upon the saints. That's what Paul's doing. When is the last time you literally looked around the room and said, thank you, Jesus, for each other, for their faith in you and their love for one another? Now, when, when Paul says thanks, when Paul thanks God for, for this, when he's thanking Jesus without ceasing, and I don't know what that exactly looks like. He's got time on his hands. He's in prison. I think he's acknowledging that this faith and love is actually a gift that God has given these people. He's not saying, Ephesians, thank you for your faith and love. He's saying, thank you, God, for their faith and love. Well, that just changes things, doesn't it? How ought we to pray? Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He says, remembering you in my prayers... So he says, I'm going to pray. This is how I pray for you. Specifically, this is the request I pray for you. Now, Paul, he's concerned about physical things. We know that. When he's writing to the Corinthians, he's taking up a collection that he's going to bring to Jerusalem to help those who are going through a famine. 
We know that Jesus is, con- con- is concerned about physical things because he teaches us to pray for our daily bread. But, when you read Paul's prayers and when you read Jesus' prayers, he's far more concerned about bigger things than the things that we can touch and feel. How does he pray? In this particular case, he tells us how he's praying for these, this church in Ephesus. And remember, this church in Ephesus is a number of different churches, meaning a number of different homes across a city of 250,000 people. He says, I'm praying that that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, again, he has this magnificent name because he has this incredible vision of who this God is. May that God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Isn't that crazy? He's saying... And it's crazy because he's just finished telling us in verse 13 that they've been sealed with this Holy Spirit. They have the Spirit. And now he's saying, I'm praying that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will give you this wisdom and revelation. That you'd see something that you're not seeing. That you'd understand something you're not understanding. That you would know something that you need to know better. And he says remembering that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So in other words, he's saying, you know God, but I'm praying that you will know God even better. That's what he's saying. And just in case we didn't get it, he goes, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, illuminated, Community Grace, Calgary Community Reform Church, this is how I pray for you. I pray when you have a health need. I pray when you have a financial need. But there's a greater request that, 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 that I think is important for us to pray about. is that you would know the God who created the heavens and the universe to such an extent that you would know Him better. I don't care if you're four years old or 84 years old. That's how I pray for you. And that's how we ought to pray for each other. Because quite frankly, what would be of greater significance than that? I I don't know of anything. Like, what what could cause a man like Job who has lost everything to fall on his face and worship God? I believe it because he knew his Redeemer lives, as we're told later in that book. What is it could cause Paul to pray like this and to praise God like this while he's in prison? Because I think he knows something that is sweeter than a home-cooked meal. With the family. Paul begins to unpack exactly what he means in verse 18 when he says, I'm praying that God would 
enlighten you, illuminate the eyes of your heart, you're literally the, that your inner being would know him, your mind and your emotions. That's the, that's the language of that, that Greek word heart. It's not just our emotions, but our mind and our emotions, our entire inner being would know God better. And he, said, and he prays in three ways for them. He starts, he says, I pray that, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's, I think he's going back to the past and says, remember when God had called you and we looked at this last week? Before the foundation of the earth, he chose us, he predestined us. Now we are told we are to call upon the name of the Lord, chapter 10, coming back from Rocky, we were listening to this on the, on, uh, through the, the, uh, the radio. Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We are called to call upon him, but that only happens because he's called us first. And Paul says, I want you to know when he called you what the hope of that calling was and is. That's an incredible, glorious word. Now, there's all kinds of things I could say about that hope of the calling. We could go to Revelation and we could take a look at what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like. We can think about the place where there will be no more tears and, and, and all of that. That's beautiful. But I want us to go back to the creation and remember what happens in creation in genesis chapter 3 it was in the cool of the day that the lord god was walking in the garden now in genesis 3 this picture that god had an intimate relationship with his creation but what's sad about genesis 3 that intimate relationship was cut off why because Adam and Eve thought they could live life their own way better. They thought what God had said wasn't good enough, and they thought they had a better word. They thought they were an authority over what God said, and they rebelled against God, and what happens? They were hiding from God. They were naked. They were ashamed. There was, there was something like there were little children who couldn't look in the eyes of their parents. And we read last week, Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He, he says, the hope to which He has called us is that we will someday live in His presence and we will be holy and blameless. There is no covering. There will be no more shame. <laughs> there, there will be no hiding from Him. We'll walk in the cool of the day with our God once again. That's the hope. And we could spend an hour, we could spend, we could spend a, a year talking about unpacking that hope. But Paul's saying, I'm praying that you understand that hope. Now I've said this before and I'm going to say it again and you're going to hear it again and again and again. Two years ago, that was a, a life-changing moment when, when, we, when Lynn was diagnosed with cancer. I didn't think we had her very long. I'm amazed I still have her. But, but when that happened, we stopped talking about retirement. We stopped talking about going on trips. We stopped talking about the, the, the potential grandkids and such and such and such because we didn't know if we had it. But as we got to know this God better, we began to talk more and more and more and more and more and more about the hope to which He has called us. 
we talked about something that was beyond the grave. And it brought joy and it brought happiness. That's what Paul's talking about. That's why when he's in prison, he can praise God like this. And he says, church in Ephesus, I am praying that you will know God in such a way. Not only does he pray for the hope to which God has called them, but he prays to what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, scholars will argue about this. I'll let them argue. I think, I, I think we shouldn't be so dogmatic. I think the, the text isn't, isn't quite really clear here. We're not sure if he's talking about our inheritance that we will get or the inheritance that God will get. If it's our inheritance, we're talking about a, a new heaven and a new earth, and that's beautiful. We're talking about a time when we will see Him and we will be like Him, as John says. That's biblical. We have an inheritance that we can look forward to. But it also could mean that we are His inheritance. You read the Old Testament, and constantly it talks about the Jewish people, the people of God being His inheritance, His heritage. Uh, either way is beautiful. Uh, if it's we are his inheritance, and then what, what the text is actually saying is we're looking forward to a time when God will say, Ah, my inheritance. What does that speak of God? It speaks that he delights in us, that he treasures us, that he loves us. That's why he adopts us. Last week we talked about adoption, and I told you the story that in my family, they're, they're, I was number three. They said, not working so well. We're going to pick the next six. And they did that, and they did a really good job. That adoption speaks of something beautiful. So last year, we celebrated my dad's 85th birthday. And so the grandkids and the great-grandkids and all of us kids showed up. Everyone was there. That was astounding. How many, how many there, Lynn? More than 10, less than a million, something like that. It was a bunch of us. And, and it was beautiful. And I watched my dad. He's sitting, he's sitting in his chair, and he just smiles as he watches the, the clan, his inheritance, his joy, his delight. I don't think he really cared about the food that was there. I don't think he really cared about the gifts that we gave. I don't think he really, he, he just was, I'm with the ones I love. Now, understand, when mom and dad adopted, that came at great cost to them. I was thinking this morning, in 1950, they came to Canada from the Netherlands. And they never went back until mom had passed away and dad finally was able to go with my sister and his brother. All his rest of his family went back on several occasions, but they couldn't because they had all these kids. But dad didn't really care. He had his kids. And, and I think when, when Paul's writing this, he goes, 
Please understand that I want you to know what is the measurable greatness of, uh, I want you to understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Not only the inheritance you're going to get, but the inheritance that he gets. He delights in you. That's powerful, by the way. I've had, I've had grown men across the table from me telling me about the things that they have done and they're horrified and they're just rocked by it and they know it's wrong and they can't understand why or how God would ever love them and I just look at them and I say, do you understand that the Father delights in you? I've seen grown man weep. That's a powerful, powerful Paul doesn't stop there. The third thing he prays for is found in verse 19. He says, I'm praying that you may know that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. I'm praying that you know God's power. And I think this is not past or future, but I think it's present. I'm praying that you understand the power that, 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 is, that is available to you because of this God. And then he explains that power in quite detail. He says, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, I've done a whole lot of funerals in my, in my, in my time of ministry. I preached at my mom's funeral. Her casket was right there. And I did not see anybody knock on that casket and open it from the inside and sit up and say, I'm here. So it would have been pretty sweet. Now we know from Scripture that has happened, Lazarus. But the power that raised Jesus from the dead is a power that's available to us as Christians. That's what Paul's saying, and he says, I'm praying that you, the church in Ephesus, would understand that. Now, he doesn't stop there, because some of these people who were raised from the dead eventually died, such as Lazarus. But it's the same power when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Now, now Paul is alluding back to Psalm 110, which was a prophecy made by David that the Christ would, my Lord, and said to your Lord, sit at my right hand. But not only did Jesus die, he never died again. And he rose from the grave and he's now sitting with his father at the right hand of his father in complete control. And just in case we miss it, he goes on. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I think he's alluding back to Psalm 8, where he's talking about Adam, and everything was put under Adam's feet, but Adam failed, but Jesus doesn't. He's at the right hand of God in control of everything, over everything. In charge. Now, as we will see as we go on, all these rulers and authorities and power and dominion speaks to he oversees Donald Trump. It may not look that way, but he does. He oversees Pierre Trudeau. Well, I guess Justin. Yeah, I'm still living back in... You can tell I'm an old guy. He's in charge of both of them. But he also oversees every, every spiritual power is what the text is also implying. The angelic world and the demonic world, he oversees them. 
And he put all things under his feet, verse 22, and he gave him his head over all things. That means he's the ruler, he's the source, he's the authority. And then he says something that is very hard to understand. He put him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. So he's the head, the church, the church in Ephesus, the church in Calgary is his body. We're one with him. The fullness of him, and I, I think the text is simply saying that he has filled his church with his presence and his power, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, we, the church, willingly and lovingly submit to his or her master. It's a power that will allow a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. It's a power that allows a child to love and respect his parents and the parents not to exasperate their children. The old King James word. It's a power that, that will change us. And as we get to chapter 2, that's an incredible thing because the text doesn't speak that highly of us. I don't believe I should ever preach a message unless it first has impacted me, and sometimes I don't really care for that. But as I look at this past week and as I was studying this text, actually the last two weeks, on Tuesday my beautiful wife has surgery. It's supposed to be a minor surgery, but I'm concerned. We're still trying to figure out what the heck's going on with our, sorry, but we, 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 still, we still are trying to find out what's going on with our wall, the water that's coming down our wall and who's going to pay for it. And if, if the insurance doesn't pay for it, I don't know how we will. But I'm trying to figure that out. And meanwhile, I'm reading about Paul. He's in prison. And all he does is praise God and selflessly pray for others. <laughs> That's crazy. And I go, okay, Lord. Would you, would you open the eyes of my heart? Would you illuminate my understanding? Would you, would you give me your spirit to such an extent that I understand who you are, that I love you and know you so much that... that those cares of this world that are important would seem unimportant. And my eyes would be fastened upon you and upon others. That I would love you above all else and love my neighbor as myself. And as I read Ephesians, I'm not only praying that God would open the eyes of your heart, that God would open the eyes of my heart to see him in a way I had never seen him before. Let's pray. Jesus, I just simply ask just the way Paul prayed 
Would you graciously, over the course of the next several weeks, as we walk through Ephesians, would you open the eyes of our heart? Would you give us enlightenment and illumination so that we might know you and see you? May we see that you, above everything else, is worthy of praise, honor, and glory. In your most precious name we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.